police boat showed up and threw me a rope and towed me out and I got the thing back upright and the cops actually said afterwards, they're like, all right, well, look, mate, we just need to take a few details. What's your name? Yeah, Phil Robertson, okay. What's your address? Yeah, all right. And then they're like, and uh, what's your profession? I was like, oh, geez, uh, I'm a professional sailor. They're like, yeah, right, mate, nice one. I think coming from New Zealand is, uh, is, is a real positive. I think you, we don't do it easy and we don't have the opportunity to do it easy. So you learn pretty quickly that um, things aren't given. You've, you've got to go and earn them and you've got to get them yourself. I instantly thought that if anyone has hit anything, they're in serious danger. Like if, if, if you're out, you're in the hands of God at that moment. If you hit the back of the dagger board, probably lights out. Sure enough, one of my crew had hit um, the back of the dagger board. Hi there, welcome to episode three of Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown and today we've got a cracking interview with Phil Robertson, the two-time World Match Racing Tour World Champion, Sail GP helmsman and former number one ranked match racer in the world. Phil talks about his journey to the top of the sport because it hasn't always been easy, what it was like to get his hands on the wheel of a Sail GP boat for the first time and where he sees the sport going. Among all that, though, he tells some funny stories about being rescued by police, his run-in with Sir Ben Ainsley when he was a teenager, and the fact the sailing circuit can sometimes feel like a travelling circus. And of course, like all guests to the show, he tells us about his worst wipeout ever, and it's a scary one. This is a segment of the show when you can share your story of your worst wipeout ever. This could be a spectacular or embarrassing crash, or perhaps a costly one. Write in to michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz and we also welcome your feedback. Right, it's time to hear from Phil Robertson. Enjoy. Well, today on the show, we're joined by Phil Robertson, who, among other things, has won two World Match Racing World titles, two M32 World titles. He's raced in the Extreme Sailing Series, GC32 Series, was skipper of a China team during the 2012 America's Cup World Series, was the world's number one ranked match racer and helped Team China to third in last year's inaugural Sail GP. This year he's with the Spanish team in Sail GP and they finished a credible fourth in the first round in Sydney. It's quite a list, Phil Robertson, and there are plenty more achievements to add to that list. Firstly, welcome to the show, but what comes to mind when I run through your sailing CV? Um, I guess there's uh, <laughs> probably not a lot of uh, representation of New Zealand there. Uh, a lot of China. <laughs> you forgot to mention Russia. Um, a lot of communist countries as well. So, yeah, it's probably something I need to change. <laughs> are you showing your political bent there, are you? <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that, eh? Hey? Yeah, I don't mind my communist countries. Uh, no, that's a joke. Um it's um yeah it's it's interesting it's been a bit of a journey i guess and one i wouldn't have expected when i started out on it but um hell of a ride and i've loved every moment yeah well it's actually that journey i'd like to talk to you about today um because it's not a traditional one and it hasn't always been easy um but firstly i understand you're in sweden um so what is life like for you under covid19 yeah, um, oh look, it's very different compared to home, I guess. Um, I've sort of been based out of Sweden for the last few years, um, based out of Europe for probably the last few, six, seven years. And uh, Sweden's been home for the last three, I, I guess I could say. And uh, it's very different. Um, their approach to this whole pandemic is um, quite unique, I would say. They're, they're sort of um, trying to slow the spread. Um, of anything, and um, everything's still open, so I can go to restaurants, bars, cafes, uh, go shopping to the mall, 
Um, I, and uh, yeah, and I can still go sailing, which is probably the biggest bonus for me right now. But I'm pretty keeping it pretty low key. I'm trying to stay away from everyone and probably very rarely come in contact with other people and stick to the family up here. And that's about it. So yeah, quite different to NZ. So what sort of sailing are you actually doing? Um, oh, <laughs> I've got a bit of a story here. I've, um, I've tried to pick up a few new skills. So I, I sort of figured the whole, my whole calendar has been, I guess, cancelled like everyone else and, or delayed a year. So it's a, it's a good time just to refresh a bit. And um, I think one thing that's key with sailing these days is you gotta you got to be trying different things and picking up new skills. And um, I've t- I took on a bit of foil surfing and foil boarding over the summer. I was fortunate to be in New Zealand for about four or five months and uh, brought myself a foil board and started to try some surfing, some paddling and towing and uh, got one of those little wings as well and took that on for a little bit. But I've I've recently got a uh, kite foil board and um, and kite and I've done very little kite surfing. So I figured it was a good step just to go straight to the foil. And um, I've, I've learned a couple of harsh lessons. So um, I was actually out yesterday. It's my first day that I kind of got the hang of it. I was, um, I've done a couple of sessions and one I couldn't get off the beach. The, the other one... Uh, I had to swim in and ditch my kite and go back out later with a boat and find it. And uh, this one was a bit adventurous. So I, I took off and I was having a good session and it was quite. It was just getting a bit lighter. And as any good sailor would do, you'd go for one last run and I dropped my kite and I was battling around in the water for probably about 20 minutes to um, relaunch it. And um, I could see this helicopter coming over the horizon. And sure enough, it was the Coast Guard and it was there hovering above me for about 15 minutes. And then the Coast Guard boat shows up as well and finally I managed to launch my kite and I was kind of just having a giggle at the whole thing because I wasn't far from shore. I was probably only at 500 metres or something but um, this time of year in Sweden the water's probably five degrees and the um, air temperature's about the same. Um, It was quite a nice day so it was probably about 10 degrees and I think the Swedes find it very foreign for someone to be in the water at this time of year so the Coast Guard was there to keep an eye on me and uh, watch me relaunch my kite and then they took off again when I gave them the thumbs up. So, yeah, I felt a bit guilty about that, but uh, a bit of an adventure. Yeah, one of the world's best um, sailors being rescued by uh, the Coast Guard, huh? <laughs> well, it's not the first time, I, I, I can tell you that. And uh, I, I actually had one in Auckland as well. I um, was, I had an ACAT and it was, it was, it was many moons ago and it was the first time I went out and I... Um, I brought my boat. I spent all my dollars buying this boat, and um, I was so excited. I went for a sail. It was actually quite light, and I was, got a bit excited and basically tipped this thing over, trying to be a bit clever, and uh, ended up washing up on uh, the Auckland waterfront there onto the rocks. And I had a couple of swimmers in the water. Oh, a couple, sorry, a couple of runners coming past. These two ladies, and they sort of looked down and they're like, "Are you all right?" And I was like, "Oh, not really. Do you mind giving me a hand?" So. These two lovely ladies were up to their neck in water trying to help me get this thing righted and um, off the rocks. And um, the police boat showed up and threw me a rope and towed me out and I got the thing back upright. And basically, the, I, could, I didn't know how to right the boat at this stage. <laughs> so the, the, the best thing of the story is the, the cops actually said afterwards, they're like, all right, well, look, mate, we just need to take a few details. What's your name? Yeah, Bill Robertson, okay, what's your address? Yeah, all right. And then they're like, and uh, what's your profession? I was like, oh, geez, uh, I'm a professional sailor. And they just had such a good giggle. And they're like, yeah, all right, mate, nice one. <laughs> I guess we can't find that on your sailing CV then, right? <laughs> no, <Nah. Nah. laughs> it's all part of it, eh? <laughs> So you have raced under various flags. You talked about Russia and China. Uh, there's also Amman and now Spain and obviously New Zealand. Um, and the, uh, maybe there are some more in there as well. But I think maybe to better understand how you've got to this point is uh, maybe have a look through your background. So how did you get into sailing and what's your story, say, up to your mid-teens? Um, oh, look, up, up to my mid-teens, it was like any other Kiwi sailor, I guess. You sort of start out and your your little well at, at first it was with my family and with dad sailing at sunburst and he actually built one in the garage when i was about uh like i was pretty much just born and he started building a sunburst in the garage and 
I think one day I quite fancied the idea of helping Dad out when he was at work, and I took took to the boat with the handsaw, and left left a couple of good marks for him. But um, that's that's where it all started. Really, was sailing with the family on family holidays and with Dad in the Sunburst fleet around Auckland, and uh, then getting into the Opti when I was probably ten years old, and just like any Kiwi, going through the classes from there into the P class and. I built a starling with my dad in the garage as well, but I didn't really have a lot of interest in the sport in around my, I guess, 15, 16. And uh, then found sailed a 420 for a couple of years and um, decided that basically it wasn't really, for me, this, um, I guess, uh, that, at that, that time there wasn't any fun boats, I guess you could say. It was... Uh, a 420 and my career path was into a 470 being quite a small human and um that again at that time there weren't any 49ers or um not even 29ers really racing in the country and there wasn't a lot of interest in it so um for me the future didn't look too bright down that path of sailing a 470 and um i decided basically well it's it's either probably go a different path or um, there was the youth training program at the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron that seemed to be a bit of fun and that was in keelboats and for me I really loved sailing with people and the bigger the team the better it was and more enjoyable and challenging so that's sort of the path I took. So what do you think that did for you as a sailor joining that YTP scheme? Um, oh, it did wonders. Um, I think the first thing is that it's actually quite a big commitment. And um, during my time there, you, you showed up at, I think it was 8 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday every week of the year. And you could, you'd sail Wednesday nights and possibly train on Tuesday and Thursdays as well. So it was, it just engulfed your life, I guess. I was actually working as a builder in that time as well. So I'd work every day and sail all weekend and, um, my life was either building houses or sailing sailing keelboats. And um, I, I think it was probably the time that I actually first started to really understand the sport of sailing and the intricacies of it as well. And, um, yeah, that was that basically set me off in, in a career. And, um, yeah, it's, I guess, match race focused as well, which I quite enjoyed. It was you're either first to your last and um, very intense sort of style and yeah you just did a ton of racing and it was a lot of fun do you you mentioned that there weren't really any fun boats do you think maybe if you'd been growing up today you might have gone a different pathway whether it was the 29ers into the 49ers and you know the necras and and all the other sort of various classes around uh, uh yeah i think so for sure um i don't think my path would have been the same i'm i'm definitely one that enjoys speed and enjoys going fast on the water and um the other thing i enjoy is teamwork so in, in my time there wasn't really anything too fast and there was a, a teamwork aspect to sailing big keel boats and that was exciting so for me and um yeah i i guess today you've, you've got a lot of cool boats and a lot of fast boats boiling boats and um it's definitely a lot cooler to be young and getting into the sport of sailing now so in 2001, I think it was, at the age of about 21, you created um, the Waka Racing Team. Um, and I think this was largely self-funded. Um, what was sort of the idea behind setting this team up? Um, yeah, I guess we, we were, uh, there's probably 40 kids that do the youth training program in, in my day. And um, out of that, we sort of quite a, create a lot of really good friends and um we decided that after we sort of done, I, I'd done three years at, at the youth training program to, um, yeah, set up a team and try and have a crack at um, sailing internationally. And a few things probably fell into place as well. We 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 set up this team and we actually had some um, private support from um, a couple of people that um, we actually wouldn't be where we are today without it. So we're very fortunate um, to have some private funding there to help us basically buy our air tickets to get to an event or two. And um, it, it all sort of fell in place when we started Walker Racing. We went over to the, I think, the Warren Jones match racing event in Perth and 
um, we won that event and with winning it, we actually won entry into a, uh, I think it was a grade one match racing event at the time in April. Was, yeah, I think in April in, in Europe. And then there was a world match racing tour event we won an entry to as well, which was in October. So we sort of figured, oh, well, we might as well stay in Europe from April to October and uh, yeah, see how see how things go and do as many regattas as we can in that period and try and boost our ranking internationally and do some other sailing as well and um, have a crack at this career. I heard a story about that Warren Jones um, regatta actually and in, in one race uh, one of your crew fell overboard um, but somehow you still managed to collect them and win the race. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, that's true, actually. I, I do remember that. That was the final as well. So I think we'd gone 1-0 up in um, the second race. Um, I'm not going to name the dude, but, uh, yeah, I think we were in the lead as well to win the event base. Oh, yeah, we, we were in the lead, I think, at the time, and we went to tack on top of the guy, and um, you know, I guess he was our pitman at the time, was tailing the jib around and got a basically got a bit happy on the snap and there was still quite a bit of slack in the jib sheet and went to hike and just fell straight overboard with all, pulling all the slack out of the jib sheet I guess and um, did well to hold on and I think we managed to drag him back up on board and just stay ahead or at least stay in the game anyway. What was it like for you in those early days? Um, you know a lot of people talk about different sports when they're sleeping on couches and just begging for um, appearances at whatever events they can get a ticket to. What was it like for you? Um, exactly the same. Yeah, um, you pretty much just nailed it right there. Um, we set off to Europe. I guess there were four, four of us and uh, Garth Allingham, James Williamson and Sam Bell um, with the goal of just yeah trying to do as much racing as we could. And um, I think we, we sold all our belongings, we sold our cars, we saved all our money and um, probably went to Europe for six months with about five grand in our pockets each and um, <laughs> it doesn't go very far with five grand so I think we had train we're, we're, we're fortunate enough to have a bit of support from New Zealand where we had enough to buy a train ticket for about three months and um, yeah did a lot of begging um, to get into events and um, stay on people a lot of people's couches that's for sure um, but look and I think that's what makes Kiwi so um, fairly good at the sport is our resilience that is built up by having to do it a bit tough. And um, I said, you you come to Europe and you look at the Europeans and it's a eight hour drive and they can go um, to a different country and race at big big events. And for us, it's a thirty hour flight to get to a big event and you spend all your savings to get there. So it really means something. But, for sure, we're sleeping on couches, and I think um, one of the best bits of advice we got and, um, was actually probably from James Spittle, and he said, look, just write an email to every single event, every uh, event organiser, and tell them you'll come at a drop of a hat because people do pull out, and I think we got an entry to a world match racing tour event maybe uh, three days before it started because one of the, the big dogs had pulled out, and I um, made a phone call to uh, a big supporter in, um, of our career in tax management New Zealand. Um, he said he sort of said to us, look, if you ever need anything, just give me a call and we'll try and help you out. So I called him and said, look, we, we, need, we need a bit of money. We've been given this opportunity to compete and can you help us buy our flights from one, one country to another in Europe? And sure enough, he did. And um, yeah, we got to another event and had a good crack at it again. So. Yeah, that's basically how our career started, was sleeping on couches and, yeah, begging to get entries. Were there ever times where you were perhaps close to giving up and, and maybe contemplating a return to, say, the building industry? Yes, I would say yes. Um, yes and no. I, I don't think so. We, I, I set out and we, I said I'd give myself five years. I said I'd take five years of my life to give it a good crack and then reassess it. and. Basically, after five years, it was going quite quite well, and I said I'll give myself another year, and it was still going well. So, yeah, it, it kept going, but like, there's it's never going to be, always be easy in a what you imagined, and it definitely gets hard. But I don't I don't think I ever got to a point where I said oh, I'll quit, and then some opportunity came up. It was always just 
working away and um, it, it seemed to be going all right. So I kept kept pushing and kept trying to learn and do as much as I could really. So that extra year must have taken you up to about 2016 uh, when you won your first World Match Racing Tour World title um, along with a million dollar paycheck. So how significant was that win for you? Um, yeah, that that was pretty big. I guess um, if, if we, we jump back those sort of five, six years, the, the goal was to win the World Match Racing Tour. Um, the goal was actually to win it in five years, and I think it took seven in the end. But, um, yeah, look, it's um, that, that was a huge win. Um, it was quite a cool time for the sport of match racing, I guess. It was just got changed six months earlier to catamarans and I sort of had had a bunch of extreme sailing experience under my belt so I knew I'd, I should be all right at sailing cats and if I could get a good team together but in, in that time I had um, zero dollars behind me so I was asking my crew to fly themselves to the events I think I paid for their hotels and food and um, it's pretty hard to get a commitment from a lot of guys but to, to the guys credit that ended up sailing with me and still do to this day they they would pay for themselves to get around the world to do some racing on the world match racing tour and i guess the fortunate thing at that time was um there was a guy that sort of i guess backed it all and he built the boats paid for the boats and um he was putting up two hundred thousand dollars at every event as well so i think if you won you an event you'd earn 30 grand and could cover your flights in a few a few fun tokens as well to put in your pocket but um yeah we the the final event was a million dollars and i think everything sort of that whole six month campaign that we put together all fell into place all at the right time and we managed to get better at each event and learn enough and take big steps basically every race we were making big steps forward and that um yeah started to peak at the right time there so is that why you called the million dollar man I think that's why they call me that. Yeah, it was the first million that uh, I guess, well, well, probably not the first, but it was for a while. A million dollars hadn't been put down on prize money for some time. So, um, yeah, they, they sort of like to label me the million dollar man, even though we didn't really win a million dollars. <laughs> You're also, I think, go by the name Fillionaire. What's the name? What's the story behind that one? Oh, same thing. Some, some Someone came up with the idea to call me the Fillionaire as well. So now the the awesome thing about that is um, there was probably good, I think there was maybe 18 teams, 16 or 18 teams racing at that time on the tour and at each event. Um, and we're all sort of in a similar position of flying ourselves there and the prize money would either pay for the trip or you'd come out the wrong side if you didn't do very well. And um, we sort of decided that and that, as as a group of skippers and, and sailors that it was a bit ridiculous for one team to walk away with a million dollars from one event and at that point as well the, the the boats weren't really up to standard in in terms of evenness and race committees were still having one the rules were changing every event so it wasn't a, a polished circuit basically and we thought it was a bit ridiculous to throw a million dollars down for for uh, one team that basically could could come down to a a bad race committee decision or umpire call that was wrong or something. So we actually um, decided before the event to sort of divvy it up in a in a different different way. But in saying that, we still managed to take away about half of it, and all the teams got something, which was great, and um, actually probably launched a few other careers out of it as well, having a bit of money in their pocket. So after that win, was it more a case of people calling you than having to pick up the phone? Um, no, nah, not at all. No, nah, I don't think it will ever be that case. You've um, even even today, you pick up the phone every for every job you you want to get. So, um, no, nah, it's yeah. I don't think it's ever been like that in my career, and I don't think it ever will be. So, I think it's um, people need to know you're interested as well. So you've got to pick up the phone. So, how did the opportunity with China and the Sail GP come along? That was. Um, I, I think that one I, I reached out to Russell and said, look, I'm, I'm interested. And my timing was probably quite right at that point of when, when I reached out. And um, it was very late in the piece as well. Um, and he sort of said, yeah, give me a couple of weeks and um, you're basically next in line. So 
he he called me in a couple of weeks and said, look, I got this opportunity um to join the circuit. And at that point, I didn't really know what teams were there or what what it was going to be like. And he said, look, I've got this Chinese team that we we want to well well basically he said we want to field a Chinese team and um we want you to drive it and be the skipper and then we'll make it up from there. So that was probably yeah that was the start of my sail GP career and um yeah it was a good one. Yeah, so what was it like to to get your hands on that wheel for the first time and sail those machines for the first time? Yeah, that's probably an experience that I won't forget in a long time. Um, I think in in your career of sailing, you, you there's always a lot of key moments, and typically they're races you lose because you remember those the most and the mistake that one mistake you made or that yeah. So and that that was a moment that I'll never forget and. Um, I think it's up in Marsden Point in New Zealand where um, they launched the boats and you did your first training session and um, we were just a bunch of guys. I think two of our team had been on an, uh, the the AC50s in the Cup as both as grinders, so they were on the boat and um, <clears throat> the boat wasn't very well refined at that point as well. Um, it had probably taken a bit of a step back, to be honest, from the, what the Cup boats were and quite difficult to handle and had a lot more riding moment as well and um, a lot more unstable so I think it was I think we've been there for about four days as a team and the weather was just too windy every single day to go for your first sail and then one opportunity opened up one afternoon of right you can basically you can go if you want it's going to be fresh but we'll leave that decision up to you and you can imagine when the team's been sitting there waiting to get their hands on an F50 for five days and you're not going to move that opportunity aside. So, um, yeah, we took it out and it's quite a difficult harbour to get out of. It's um, you, You're sort of refined to quite a small shipping channel um, to get out of Whangarei Harbour and um, so you got to weave your way out and it was a bit of a downwind run and it was the first time we've ever sailed a bo- that boat and I think I, I was flying the boat as well off the wheel with the twist grips and uh, it was uh, a little bit loose, to say the least. <laughs> but um, yeah, we managed to we managed to get it under control pretty quickly and um, had a fairly good first session. So um, that was a bit of a relief. But there were definitely a few nerves and uh, yeah, a lot of um, what did I say? I had no idea what to expect as well. So it was cool though. So how aware are you of the fact that you're driving these multi-million-dollar machines? and the consequences if things go wrong? Well, you're pretty aware when you crash one. <laughs> um, they're not cheap boats. <laughs> um, yeah, look, um, we, we actually we had a bit of a crash in uh, the last event in Sydney with the Spanish team into the French. and um, it's, it's not ideal. It's definitely not the type of boats you want to be crashing. Um, it was a, a bit of a mistake on our behalf and um, something we, we've learned from, but... Um, yeah, look, they're um, yeah, phenomenal machines. Uh, but I think what people probably don't realise is the effort that goes in just to get them sailing. And I think you'd hate to know the cost of an hour of sailing that it, it would be with all the stuff that goes on in the background. And um, to the, the credit of the Sail GP series, it's, it's the guys that work in the sheds and... Um, it's sort of uh, majority of them are actually Kiwis um, that from core boat builders up in Walkworth and um, the, the effort that they put in probably two weeks before to a week after the event and all during it, uh, they're working 14, 16 hour days just to get these boats sailing every every day possible. And um, yeah, it's uh, uh, definitely something. I remember um, talking to you on the eve of uh, that first season of Sail GP, and you talked about how there could be some fisticuffs, um, you know, between sailors um, just with the, all of that close quarter racing. How much of what you say is a bit like sort of boxing hyperbole, and and how aware of you of giving good sound bites? I genuinely did think there could be some fights in that series, um, looking at some of the skippers. But it turns out when you you race these these boats in such close quarters and confined spaces as well, that um, you actually have a lot of respect for the other guys and that are doing your job as well. And um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm not friends with all of them, but um, for sure, I did think that there could be a couple of fights when someone pushed the pushed the envelope a bit too far, and um, it could happen in the future. But look, we at the end of the day, you know, it's uh, racing is we're, we're trying to bring sailing to, I guess, the the general public and trying to get more interest in the sport is a big part of what these type of series like Sail GP are doing, and um, you have the best sailors in the world racing and small little harbours and it's exciting to watch so it, a massive part of it is is the show business and um you, you start to realize that you you get very limited time to train and um everything's based around tv and um basically yeah i guess you're just the clowns in the circus at the end of the day and um and all you want to do is put together a great campaign and race the perfect race but the reality is is it's a show and this is your time on the water, and um, I think people would be shocked at the amount of actual sailing time that we do on these boats as well, and and the training time we get is so limited um, compared to what you'd really want, I guess, to 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 do to be able to perform to your best in these these type of craft. I've got a, another quote for you um, from November last year, um, and I quote: "I first raced Big Bad Benny as an 18-year-old punk." After the race, he called me a little, Mm-mm. there's been a lot of water under the bridge since see you in Sydney, Ben. Uh, the Ben is obviously Sir Ben Ainsley. What's the story behind that running? Oh, it, um, it was a beauty. You know, I've, um, I, was, I was actually match racing in Auckland and um, I think it was our national match racing champs that was in the MRX boats um, and all the cup teams were there for I think it was a AC World Series event, so they're all doing their national champs. And you can imagine we're we're 18 year old kids, and we're just up against our idols. You had two teams from Team New Zealand, you had Ben Ainsley, you had uh, all the America's Cup teams are basically racing, and we're in heaven just being able to go on the start line against these guys. And uh, we're actually we're having a really good event, and I think we're ahead of Ben Ainsley for our whole race, and he's at that point had probably won. I don't know, ten gold medals or something like that, and um, we were we were um, yeah actually ahead of him the whole race, and and I think he 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 was right on our tail, and he managed to catch up and um, basically put us in a position where he jibed and crashed into us, and we got a penalty, and um, at, at that point again we had zero dollars to our name, so um, we we really were so gutted about um, having to pay for the damage of this these boats because we knew how expensive it was going to be and um i think after i ended up in a protest with them just to to decide what happens with the cost of the damage and they said all right you split the damage cost and you're both going to lose half a point for the crash and it wasn't at all our fault this crash and um i was sort of a little bit relieved to not have to front the whole damage bill and he sort of leant over to me after the protesters were were waiting at a quiet moment and he whispered in my ear he said uh it's not the result, was it? Oh, sorry, he said, it's not the result you want to, was it, you little dick? <laughs> and you can imagine this is your idol and he's just calling you out and calling you a little dick. And I was uh, instantly lost a lot of respect for the man. But, um, yeah, as, as I said, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then and I've raced him a thousand times and I like to think we got our own back and it was definitely a motivation every time we lined up against him on the start line was to remember that moment and... Uh, yeah, come at, at him with a bit of aggression too. So, yeah, it's all good. He's a good man, though. <laughs> um, so China did finish third in that uh, first sale GP. Um, did you surprise yourself with that result? No, not really. No, I I think when we sat down at the start of the season and we said, look, this is, I guess, this is these are our cards we've got, and um, where do you think we can? Where should we be aiming? And we thought, look, it's we know it's going to be hard to beat the likes of. Australia and uh, Japan with Nathan and these guys are basically come straight out of the America's Cup so they've got three or four years under their belts of sailing these type of boats and we're pretty green so we sort of looked at the other teams and thought yeah look we we should have a we should be able to have a good crack at these other teams and um, I guess there are a couple of moments which set us back in that series but um, I think other teams had those moments as well and 
at the end of the day, we, we, we sailed a fairly good series and um, got better as um, each event went on, which I think is so important. And it's like a, like a regatta, you just got to be getting better every race. And um, when it's a series like that, you've got to be doing, you've got to be improving every series. And we managed to do that. And um, yeah, it, uh, finished in Marseille with a bit of a highlight where we were, yeah, fin- I guess finished third overall in the last two events. And won our first race in Marseille and proved that we could actually be competitive. So that's that was the end goal, was just to be able to be competitive against Australia and Japan. So China's not there this year. So what sort of happened um, behind the scenes? Why are they not lining up this year? Um, well, in hindsight, it's probably a good thing because I don't think we'd have a team um, <laughs> with what's going on in the world at the moment. But um yeah look it, it got just got a bit political um the the, the chinese are a very unique um nation i think is fair to say and um their way of doing business is very different to a way the way the western world does it and um i think it sort of just there was a bit of conflict there at the end of the day and um unfortunately politics got in the way of of what could have been a great sports team and a and a great story and great for sailing in China as well I think what what we were sort of planning on doing and about to set out to achieve and um, yeah it, it all sort of crashed came crashing down in December last year and I got a phone call saying oh um, we're sorry but China's done with we, we can't keep going forward with this team and but there's um, we're gonna start a Spanish team so we want you to take that on okay so it was straight away you already heard that there was a potential you know alternative for you because I was, I was just sort of wondering whether you know there was a period when you thought jeepers that might be the end of my sale gp road there yeah there's definitely is that period for sure um I, I sort of knew for a while that it was pretty rocky and wondered what my next move was going to be um so yeah it's uh, yeah, in the end, when when the decision got made, there was already already a decision on uh, what was going to happen in the future with the new team, and I think it was probably a smart choice as they wanted, I guess, someone with a bit of experience to to help them get up to speed, and that's where I slotted in quite nicely for them. So we heard in the um, introduction that you raced in the 2012 America's Cup World Series um, again with China. Um, so is the America's Cup still on your radar? And if so, what's it going to take um, for you to crack it? Um, yeah, for sure. It's well on my radar. I'd love to be involved. And um, I'm very jealous of the boys in New Zealand sailing around in those boats at the moment. Um, that looks like a lot of fun. And um, I've got a great little team going on there. So, yeah, it's definitely uh, always been on my radar and always, I guess, been one of the goals is to be racing in the America's Cup. And I think as a sailor, you want to be, or any any um, athlete and competitor, you want to be racing against the best and proving your skills, I guess. And that's something that's always been a dream of mine is to be racing in the Cup. And also the Volvo Ocean Race is something I'd love to do. So there's a lot there. And, um, you know, I, I think what what's the best route forward and uh, like it's just to keep trying to race against the best and do the best racing you can and um, one day an opportunity will come and I think you've also got to be looking for opportunities as well so yeah that's on the radar for sure. So a few phone calls from deepest darkest Sweden during lockdown? Yeah look you try and keep in touch and yeah unfortunately there's not a lot going on at the moment and I think there's um, people have a lot of big issues to to deal with, but um, yeah, we'll keep pushing to try and uh, be involved as soon as we can. What is your experience um, in ocean racing? Um, I've done I've done a fair amount, I would say. Um, I did quite a bit. Um, I guess, geez, maybe five years ago, five six years ago. Um, I've been to Fiji a couple of times and a few deliveries back as well. Um, Sydney to Hobart couple of times the fast net race um yeah a lot of deliveries across tasman as well so um yeah i've done a fair few miles and a few cool races and yeah i I really enjoy it actually i think it suits my personality pretty well and um love a bit of hard work and um yeah it's a it's a cool cool sport to see how that's developing as well with um foiling starting to get into ocean racing as well so i'm keeping a close eye on it 
So if, if the world can somehow, you know, get back to some normality sooner rather than later, where do you see yourself in, in some maybe a, a decade from now? Jeez, a decade. Um, poor, that's a long time. I'd hate to think how old I am then. Um, that's a bit of a scary thought. <laughs> um, I, I actually, yeah, look, I, I don't know. Uh, to be honest, if I can still be racing at the top of the sport against the best guys, I'll be really happy. And um, right now, I guess I, I, I'm heavily involved with SailGP, and um, it's um, uh, epic. It's such a cool series and amazing boats to be sailing. So um, if I can keep developing my skills and sailing those type of boats and sailing other foiling vessels, I guess, and it's a good place to be and uh in 10 years who knows who knows what the sport will be or where it will be and what it will look like but it's going to be very cool that's for sure and if i can be somewhere near the top of that and racing against the best guys i'll be pretty happy so do you kind of sort of more operate i guess in 12 month or 24 month blocks and sort of see where your future is um, because it's changing so rapidly yeah exactly yeah, and especially now, I guess the whole everything's been flipped on its head, and um, who knows what's we, we, when the next event's going to pop up. So um, it's a bit of a rethink, but uh, for sure, look, I I guess at the moment, and what's probably been quite likely for the in in the last couple of years is you, you're almost running on a yearly um, a yearly cycle where you, you you're drafting every year for for jobs and um, yeah it's not an ideal place to be but the way I look at it is your future's never certain and if you're not fighting on a yearly basis to to hold your position or keep your position or just just to be better basically every year then that's uh, you're probably in the wrong headspace and many times I've been in a campaign for instance the the Chinese one you know that was a three to five year plan for that team and you start that campaign with a plan of five years right this is where we want to be in five years and this is how we're going to get there and a lot of your decisions and how you sail is based on the future and 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 then reality is is that you've only got a year so you've got to perform and otherwise you're out and um it's yeah it's it's it's, it's interesting it's um a bit difficult but um for sure i think um yeah my, my focus is typically one year at a time and making sure you're improving every year to the million dollar question for the million dollar man why do you think you've been so successful i think um i think coming from new zealand is a is a real positive i think you we don't do it easy and we don't have the opportunity to do it easy so you learn pretty quickly that um things aren't given you've you've got to go and earn them and you've got to get them yourselves and um it's definitely a lot of hard work and that's that's uh, puts you in great in great shape for the future as well so um that that's probably a massive positive i think and how i sort of view it from living up here now as well is that it's it's not easy when you're from new zealand trying to make it internationally and so that's that's probably one thing i think that's really helped my career and um the other is um i i really believe you, you get few opportunities in, in this career in sport and if you don't take them and capitalize on them at that moment then it, it's, you, you never know when your next opportunity is going to come and and for me I've probably had a few and um, maybe the first one I let slide a bit from just probably from just being a bit young and a bit immature and not really understanding the sport or, or the, the politics of it even um, and but that's taught me basically how to capitalize on the next one and um yeah so yeah i think you, you're going to get opportunities and you've got to take them so when you kind of sort of started i guess you know match racing was a big thing um mostly in mono house um do you feel like match racing skills are a bit of a dying art with this focus on speed and you know you've talked about basically being a fighter pilot um no i don't i think um I think the, I think the, you know you could be sailing a, a laser, and I think that teaches you amazing skills for sailing a F50. Or you could be match racing in a um, hundred-year-old boats um, out of Bermuda and the IODs, and that teaches you great skills for how to how to sail boats. So 
I think everything in the sport is relates to something and you can learn amazing lessons from sailing the fastest boats to sailing the oldest, slowest boats as well. Um, and and it all it's all relative and it all transfers and I think match racing teaches you some amazing things in terms of ter- in terms of uh, teamwork and um, the skills you learn from that. Um, yeah, I I think the communication is probably a massive one when it comes to sailing at speed and sailing with a team of people that have all got to be in sync together to make the boat get around the track basically. So. Um, yeah, I think so many things from match racing I have taken forward and everything I've done and, and that's probably the root of how I set up my teams and um, on the water and during racing and in high pressure situations and I think that's probably one of the beauties of match racing slow boats is you're half a boat length apart the whole race and you've got someone wanting to kill you on your tail or you want to kill them right in front of you so yeah, it puts you under pressure, and um, when you're sailing an F50 at, I guess, 40 knots around a racetrack, um, you're under a bit of pressure, and uh, communication has to be calm and um, precise as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that transfer from all of the sport into racing at the top of it. Do you have any idea where this sport is going? Um, I guess you can sort of get a bit of a gist of where it's going at the moment um it's it's moving into the air pretty rapidly and it's getting a lot faster so um I, i'd say we're it's still going to develop so far in the next 10 years i mean you look back 10 years to where it is now and um it's a huge leap forwards and uh it's probably going to take another massive step again so it's so exciting to be a part of and i, I think it's a great time for the sport and hopefully we can popularize it a bit more and um yeah get it get a bit more interest in the sport of sailing is going to be huge and i think it's great that the cups in new zealand for our country and hopefully that can spark the light in a, a bunch of young punks as well to to take up the sport and and also the oldies to get involved in watching it and if we can put on a good show and it's produced well enough i think we can start to make this sport uh, a lot more popular so young punks who can sort of take you to the protest room and then share the costs for any damage, right? Exactly. And then I'll call them little dicks afterwards. <laughs> well, Phil, it's been um, fascinating to talk to you about your your journey, but I can't let you go without um, you telling us your worst wipeout ever, which is a regular segment of the show. Um, the floor is yours. Oh, cool. Um, I've got so many beauties, eh? And they all involve boiling boats and capsizing. Um, but probably that my my uh, scariest one would have been uh, on the GC32. We were racing in Cardiff in um, a tiny little bay. Basically, it's a little pond in Cardiff. And um, it, it's rather windy. It was quite a windy day. And we were in the lead of this race. And we re- went around the top mark. Um, fairly comfortable and that course in Cardiff you basically bear away you've got a jibe and you're already overlay so it's a bear away jibe and you're overlaid coming into the bottom mark so no genicas you're just under your main and your jib boiling and I think we went around the mark doing probably a good 30 32 33 knots and uh, straight into a jibe and basically we got so high on our tips of our foils so we're right up in the air and um, we basically just did one hell of a pitch pole. Um, and the the scariest thing of that is you probably had about a second to realise, well, you didn't even have a second. You had half a second where it all just sort of went in an instant and um, you couldn't hold on or anything. Um, you, the G-forces that went into it were scary. And um, when I sort of, I was driving the boat at the back and I hit the water within half a second, um, in front of the boat somewhere and I instantly thought that if anyone has hit anything they're in serious danger like if, if, if you're out you're in the hands of God at that moment if you hit the back of the dagger board or something solid yeah it's po- probably lights out so my instant reaction was to see is, is everyone okay and I was thankful that I hit nothing and 
sure enough, one of my crew had hit um, the back of the dagger board and um, he had uh, yeah, basically damaged from top to toe on his body. And it was a real eye-opener of the dangers of our sport at the moment and where it's going and the level of safety that needs to go with it, with the development. And um, that was one one scary capsize. And unfortunately, we haven't been allowed to release the footage of it, but it's um, something that um, basically brought it all back to reality that we are playing with life and death um, sailing these fast boats at times. And um, you are in the hands of God when you get it wrong. And um, yeah, thankfully, everyone ended up okay out of that. And we had the stain of shame on the top of our mainsail as well from the mud and yeah, got back up and then back into it. But uh, yeah, look, it's a, a sport that's developing fast and it's getting fast and the safety is something that um, is becoming a key part of it too. And uh, that's starting to develop quite rapidly now as well. So do crashes like that affect you or do you sort of have to put that to the back of your mind and just push hard most of the time? Uh, yeah, you've got to brush it off. They, um, yeah, they might affect you for a little bit, but um, it's also quite motivating, I find, as well, when you do something like that. And um, uh, yeah, I think uh, after that we managed to get the boat back upright, and once our man was sort of uh, off to hospital and safe, we managed to get back into racing and actually um, and won a race and had two brilliant races at the end of the day, I think, after that. So it it's definitely affects you a little bit. But, look, I think the, the biggest lessons from that is you start to realise the, um, I guess, the procedure of how to recover from something like that and, and the safety around it all as well and the, the lessons I learned on recovering a man from the water and the damages. And um, actually being in in, in in a crash like that or an accident like that, it teaches you so much as well about, and yeah, and, and then the, the safety of the sport to see it develop out of that as well is quite a cool thing. Certainly is. Well, we certainly um, look forward to seeing you and everyone else back on the water sooner rather than later. Um, when that all is, we're sort of unsure at the moment, but um, look after yourself in, in Sweden and we look forward to seeing you back on these waters at some stage. And um Again, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, awesome. And uh, very cool to chat, Michael. Thanks for, thanks for having me as well. So, yeah, hopefully we'll get another one another time. Yep. Well, I think we can agree that we'll probably have Phil Robertson back on Broadreach Radio at some stage in the future, especially if he can stay at the top of the game of the sailing world. Um, that wraps up another show for the week. Uh, we'll have another one for you next Friday when we interview another person making a name for themselves in New Zealand sailing. Until then, take care and we'll see you then.